Good afternoon, I'm Fred Kemp from uh, the Atlantic Council's President and CEO. Uh, Secretary Carter, Ash, it's just wonderful to have you back here again. Um, it's an honor to have you join us to help this crucial discussion. Uh, and you've been committed to this issue throughout your career and of course also the Pentagon. So I can't think uh, of anyone better to give these remarks. Um, uh, uh, you have a long and wonderful biography you're going to be introduced uh, by Nate, uh, who I'll turn to in a second, Nate Tibbetts, uh, a member of our board and, for, and Qualcomm Senior Vice President for Government Affairs. Uh, so I won't give an elaborate description of everything you achieved in life, except for the high point, which of course was Atlantic Council board membership. Um, the, uh, we're also live streaming this event, so welcome to all those watching online. For those of you active on Twitter, Please join the conversation using the hashtag America Innovates, hashtag America Innovates. We're gathered today for the official release of the report, Keeping America's Innovative Edge, the culmination of our first year of work on America's role as a global leader in technology-driven innovation, conducted in partnership with Qualcomm. As such, I first want to thank Nate, uh, uh, Qualcomm Senior Vice President for Government Affairs, for partnering with us on this effort. Your team's knowledge on these, these issues and dedication to the project were essential for getting this over the uh, finish line, so thank you. It's part of a broader two-year effort between the Atlantic Council and Qualcomm aimed at gaining an understanding of how the United States fits into the rapidly evolving uh, knowledge economy, global knowledge economy, and defining the steps that policymakers, business leaders, educators, entrepreneurs, and others can take to ensure that the U.S. stays at the forefront of technological innovation. This important effort is led by the Atlantic Council's Foresight, Strategy, and Risks Initiative, whose mission is to identify and assess global trends to inform policy and draw implications uh, for strategy, uh, led by Matt Burroughs, um, formerly um, of the National Intelligence Council. The release of this report comes at a critical moment to our history. Tech-driven innovation has been fundamental to the economic prosperity and global preeminence of the United States. Yet in today's rapidly evolving environment, there is a real risk that the United States could lose this edge. Growing tech competition from China and other nations is real and threatens to displace the use the U.S. across a range of key technologies, and I don't have to tell you what kind of uh, global implications that could have. Imagine if the United States had not been uh, first to the atomic bomb or to Silicon Valley. To better understand all of this and begin to map out a way ahead, we began our project asking a simple question. Why is the U.S. the world leader in this space? A very simple question, not so easy to answer. But to answer it, we took the Atlantic Council on the road to U.S. tech hubs, traveling to Madison, Wisconsin, Boulder and Denver, Colorado, Austin, Texas, and San Francisco and Silicon Valley in California. Through roundtables and individual interviews conducted at these locations, augmented by research here in D.C., the team developed our key findings, a few of which I'll make very briefly note of. Uh, public investment in basic R&D systems is falling. Public university funding has been slashed, and America's workers are not being supported in ways that allow them to compete in the 21st century economy. Number two, America's economic geography is highly uneven, with some places doing far better than many others. Uh, but it's not all bad news. The U.S. can sustain and even improve 
our incredibly dynamic innovation system, the engine of our Kurt, entire economy, no. if we are smart and uh, public investment and in basic R&D system. Uh, sometimes we even repeat ourselves. Uh, um, the federal government's role in, the, in this is critical. It is by far the most important actor in funding basic science, not to mention the enormous significance of its activities in other areas, including high-skilled immigration, in intellectual property protection, and infrastructure investments. Finally, it goes without saying that none of this work uh, could, could go on without the innovative forces of the country, tech companies, startups, entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and workers. Each has a critical role to play, all of which are discussed in the report, and I hope those of you who haven't read it closely already would do so. Um, and you can pick it up in the lobby uh, uh, on your way out. So without further ado, I'm going to turn the floor to Nate, who will provide some additional remarks. Uh, but uh, before I do, I want to uh, remind everyone in the room and everyone online and live streaming that this, is event, this event is public and on the record. Nate, the floor is yours. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you, Fred. Thanks to the Atlantic Council for convening this event to discuss how America can compete its competitive advantage. This is a topic that we've been thinking about um, for most of our existence at Qualcomm. We're about 30 years old. Um, our inventors create the technology that is the underpinning for your smartphones and your smartest devices. Um, we really created the always-on mobile ecosystem that you know today. And over the last 30 years, we've invested heavily in research and development. About 20% of our revenue, um, cumulatively, that's about $45 billion since our inception. And that's the reason your mobile products work so well today. We're really keenly aware um, that technology and innovation requires substantial investment from, from a number of sources. And as Fred mentioned, the US is at the risk of losing its leading position. Um, and that's something that led us to think about this project and ask the questions, how do we maintain that technology edge with all of these uh, competitive forces? As an invention-driven company, Qualcomm has joined with the Atlantic Council, as Fred mentioned, in a two-year partnership to take a look at this, both in the U.S. and next year around the world. The project was really conceived in honor of General Scowcroft. Um, he was a longtime board member at Qualcomm, and as he retired from his board service, we wanted a way to honor his contribution to our company. Um, this was uh, a, an idea that Fred and I cooked up together, um, talking about how we could both um, uh, honor General Scowcroft and his contribution and really look at how the U.S. can maintain its edge. First year of the partnership, we studied the future of technology and innovation, um, the role of uh, hubs, tech hubs around the country, which you'll hear more about today. And the second year of our partnership, we're going to do the same thing looking around the world. So we're very excited about what's to come in 2018. We have a great group here today, and I really look forward to a lively discussion. Um, but first, it's my great pleasure to introduce our keynote speaker, um, former Secretary of Defense, Ash Carter. Since he really needs no introduction, this is going to be the briefest introduction of all time. But I will say that he served as our 25th Secretary of Defense under President Barack Obama. He previously served as the DEPSEC DEF, as those in this room will know. 
um, was the Defense Acquisition Chief and Assistant Secretary for Global Strategic Affairs. As a physicist, as a rocket science scientist, a professor of science and international affairs, and a Rhodes Scholar, he is no stranger to these issues and has a keen interest in fostering and supporting American innovation. And we're thrilled to have him here today. So please help me welcome Secretary Ash Carter. Afternoon, everyone. Uh, Fred, thank you uh, for uh, having me back here to the Atlantic Council. Appreciate it. And Nate, for those kind words and for your service to our country uh, and for your friendship. I'm, I'm very pleased to be here at the Atlantic Council, especially at an event launching a report that took its inspiration from Brent Scowcroft, one of my mentors one of the finest national security thinkers this country's been fortunate to have in its service, and a beacon of civility and decency in public life. The United States has also benefited from the work and advice of the Atlantic Council as a whole over the years. Today, with this report and more, the Atlantic Council is again inspiring public and private leaders to identify challenges and seize opportunities at a moment of great and accelerating change, much driven by technology, and <clears throat> an era of greater and fiercer competition for excellence, for security, and for the well-being of our peoples. Till two months ago, I was leading such an organization, a competitive organization, to ensure the U.S. military maintained its competitive edge at a time of change and competition as Secretary of Defense, I challenged the Pentagon, as I used to say, to think outside of its five-sided box. We needed to be willing to change how we invested and how we innovated, how we planned and how we fought, and how we recruited and retained personnel, how the department was structured and functioned, and how we worked with our partners and allies, all for the better. So today, at a time of transition in Washington and in the world, and in my own life, I just ended a 35-year career in national security and launched a new one, where I'll be lead Harvard's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs and serve as professor of technology and global affairs at Harvard and an innovation fellow at MIT. I want to share with all of you some of the lessons that I learned in leading the U.S. Department of Defense through an era of change and their applicability to broader purpose. At the DOD, the, uh, the source of American power, as well as my greatest joy in the job, came from the young people who make up the spine and the future of the force. And the other source of strength is the tendency of the organization as a whole to be able to change and innovate to compete and win. And today, in these remarks, and in this, uh, as well as in this new phase, of my own life and career, I want to focus on the next generation that will create a better world for us and their children, and on building bridges between innovators and technologists in that generation, this time for the broader public good of America, something that's sorely needed. Secretary of Defense needs to win the wars and meet the security challenges of today, destroying ISIL, deterring Russian aggression, maintaining stability in the Asia-Pacific, countering Iran's malign influence in the Gulf, and deterring 
defending against North Korea, to name just a few, but also, and also, to meet the unforeseen challenges and opportunities that an unpredictable future might hold. Both of those are the job of the Secretary of Defense and the Department. And to me, that meant ensuring that my successor and my successor's successor continued to have what I inherited from my predecessors, the finest fighting force the world has ever known. That excellence is not a birthright. It's not automatic. It needs to be re-earned in each generation. To do so, we had to, even as we dealt with the challenges of today, invest and innovate for the uncertain future. That's why I was consistently pushing the Pentagon to ensure that our technology and our plans and our organization, and above all our people, young people especially, stayed the best for decades to come. We pushed the envelope for, with research and development, despite the unconscionable budget environment in Washington, to stay ahead of our competitors and at technology's frontier by putting, for example, $72 billion into R&D in the year. And to give you a little context, that's more than double what Apple, Intel, and Google spend on R&D in 2015 combined. Beyond that, we set out to build and to rebuild bridges between the Pentagon and America's technology community. Bridges like the one I had crossed from physics to defense decades ago. One way we tried to do so was through the Defense Innovation Unit Experimental, or DIUX, which I created to help connect DOD with startups and other commercial tech firms in Silicon Valley, Boston, Austin, and everywhere in between. Just last week, I visited with the DIUX leadership and saw firsthand the success they've had, not only in facilitating dozens of deals with tech companies not, that were not previously postured or had any experience working with DOD, but also how the military services have begun to exploit the benefits of building bridges, thinking differently about procurement and using tech to improve their own systems and processes. They know it's good for their warfighters, for the services, and for the taxpayers. And another way I tried to do so was by establishing the Defense Digital Service to recruit talent from the technology community to work with the military for a specific time or on a specific project to apply a new approach to solving an existing challenge and thereby be part of something bigger than themselves and have something, even if they didn't stay with us, that they would be proud of for the rest of their lives. We also innovated in our operational plans. Our core contingency plans were constantly being changed to apply innovation to our operational approaches, including ways to overcome emerging threats such as anti-satellite weapons or hybrid warfare. We also built in modularity planned new ways for overlapping contingencies, injected agility and flexibility in our plans and aligned them transregionally and transfunctionally. Meanwhile, we made reforms across the DOD enterprise, streamlining our headquarters operations, continuing to improve our acquisition processes to be more efficient, reforms that need to continue. And we ensured the DOD's was a place where thinking boldly and differently was fostered.
One way I did that was the creation of the Defense Innovation Board, which I established in Google Alphabet's Eric Schmidt chaired and chairs. And many other leading innovators, top thinkers and doers from the private sector and academia, people like Amazon's Jeff Bezos, LinkedIn's Reid Hoffman and others joined it as well. They all brought a culture and a mindset and the practices of the tech community to us in the Department of Defense. And lastly, we sought to build what I called the force of the future to ensure that amid generational, technological, and market labor changes, DOD continued to attract and retain and develop the most talented people America has to offer for what is, after all, an all-volunteer force. And that being, other than technology, the strength and the power and the future of the force. In total, our initiatives spanned the career of a uniformed service member or DOD civilian, from recruiting men and women to join, to caring for, retaining, and developing them, and then to helping successfully transition those who want to move on. And also, we sought to ensure that DOD was able to draw from 100% of the American population and to compete for the best DOD, and to compete for the best, DOD must select the best based solely on their qualifications to meet our high standards. Not race, not gender, not identity, not sexual orientation, but rather focusing on whether someone can meet our standards as the best qualified person to do the job. Because we started all this, because I believe that things that make sense tend to continue, and because DOD was willing to change and adapt and innovate, I left office confident that the department's future is bright and that America's military edge, strengthened with investments over decades and honed in battle over the last 16 years, would remain unrivaled for decades to come. On all these efforts, particularly in my work to connect DOD to the tech community, I learned two things about the use of technology to support and pursue not only the mission of security but other critical aspects of the broader public good, and that's my focus today. Both are applicable to this conversation and to helping make ours a stronger, more prosperous, and safer society, and helping the nation overall to keep and hone its competitive edge. The first is that the bridges between tech-driven change and public purpose need to be repaired and restored in fields well beyond defense. These bridges don't maintain themselves. When I first started, working in defense, the influence passed down by the World War II generation of technologists to those who trained me was still very strong. To win that war, those giants developed radar, nuclear weapons, and much more. And in the decades that followed, they believed they also had a continuing responsibility to wrestle with all the consequences of their innovations, particularly with regard to nuclear weapons. On the one hand, those scientists recognized that their work to produce the bomb had likely hastened the end of World War II, deterred the Soviet Union in the Cold War, and made nuclear power possible. But on the other hand, it posed the danger of total and annihilating war, proliferation to other nations, possibly to non-state actors like terrorists, and accidents like Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. With all of this experience, it was in the DNA of that generation of technologists to work for the public good 
and to continue to apply their technical insights to resolving the challenges that came during the Cold War. I was fortunate to know and to be mentored by many of the technologists from that era, and they instilled in those they trained a sense of that same responsibility. So the first thing I learned when, as Secretary of Defense, trying to build bridges to the tech community was that many of today's innovators do not have the same historical links to thinking about the broader public good. But the second thing I learned about today's innovators in Boston, Silicon Valley, Austin, and many hubs in between, or an innovation engine overall that no other nation can boast, is that many of them, a growing number of them, are extremely and increasingly receptive to the commitment and the responsibility to serve the public good. After all, these are people driven by a desire to do things of consequence. People who have the thirst to turn their innovative mind to big challenges. They just need a route to do so. They don't always find one in the private sector, since understandably investors in capital markets start by focusing on the upside and not on all the effects of tech-driven change. But these innovative technologists see a chance and a need to make sure that all of our fellow citizens benefit from their inventions. And that's why I believe we need to ensure that our innovative engine works for all of those fellow citizens by building those bridges that bring innovators and public purpose together. We have to do this to retain our competitive edge as a society in the same way that I sought to retain our competitive edge as a military. We need it to keep the American dream and American unity assured into the future. When I was building and in many cases rebuilding bridges between the tech community and the Pentagon, I found that most technologists and innovators increasingly feel both the opportunity and the responsibility to address security challenges, and we're looking for ways to do so. And I've seen in my experience that technologists who are expert at these innovations have to be at the table as society figures out how to maximize the benefits and minimize the downsides of transformative innovations, to protect people and communities and livelihoods and more from potential unintended and adverse consequences while getting all the benefits. Before I became Secretary of Defense, for example, I was working with a group of technologists and innovators and educators in opportunities to use technological change for the broader good of Americans. The objective of the project was not national security, but to engineer ways we could make sure Americans had the skills to be secure in their careers and livelihood and competitive in the world. We looked at ways, for example, to widen the use of LinkedIn-type networking technology, which I had introduced into military recruiting and retention, between a broader range of employers and employees, not just professional employees, but a wider range of skills and employment. We investigated approaches to lifelong training, skill development, and to credentialing. We sought opportunities to provide tech-enabled global market access to U.S. companies, large and small, so that they could export goods and services into the global middle class. Not only manufactured goods, but they, although that's important, but also services like energy services, engineering, architecture, and design, 
and so forth. We looked at how to give small and medium-sized enterprises access to big data and the tools to use it. And we worked with public and private institutions to develop regional tech hubs. I believe then that these efforts to widen the opportunities of technological change and to lift up all citizens would be critical to America's future. And everything that's happened since then has convinced me that that's true. And at the same time, when too many people in too many parts of the country feel left out by change and innovation, I still believe we must do more to make sure all Americans can benefit from the innovation and technological revolutions that we're experiencing. With that project and my experience as Secretary of Defense, both of them helped me to understand about putting technology and technologists in service to the public good today, is that spirit is there among our innovators. But the bridge connecting them to contribute is not. That's why I believe we must help identify and build the bridges for technologists and innovators to make an essential and responsible contribution. That's one of the benefits of the Atlantic Council program, and others like it, and something I'm going to be working on in my own new life. That's because seizing these opportunities is essential to our success as a nation and a civilization in the 21st century. And I'm confident that the United States will do so. For the same reason, I was confident that the U.S. military will remain the finest fighting force the world has ever known. We'll maintain our competitive edge because the United States enters this time of change and crises and competition with unrivaled strengths. We only need to match them with determination. Our strengths start with our principles, which, as history has shown, are not just principles we hold dear. They have broad and attractive appeal. We have helped establish, lead, and defend a principled international order that has benefited our own interests, but also those of many others around the world. That's why America has so many friends and allies, and our antagonists have few or none. America's strength is also built on our economy. And following one of the hardest recessions in recent memory, the U.S. economy has made some great gains, jobs and GDP, we're going to continue to make progress because of our dynamic and innovative businesses, vibrant tech community, our world-leading world universities, and the energy revolution underway in our country right now. America's strength is certainly manifest in our military. Our military maintains world-leading capabilities because we've made incomparable investments over decades. The American military has also developed unrivaled, and this is important, unrivaled operational experience, hard-earned through 16 years of continuous war, and honed an unparalleled ability to work with a network of allies and partners. All these strengths, all these strengths should give us comfort and confidence, but we also have to invest wisely in them and build the bridges between our strengths. That's why I helped bring America's world-class private sector leaders, tech and innovators and scholars into the Pentagon so that we'd benefit from other areas of strength. Maintaining these strengths and manifesting them effectively and efficiently will likewise require building bridges between our innovators and the broader public good. I hope you'll do that today and in the years ahead. Thank you for having me.
so much, former Secretary Carter. And uh, I'd like to welcome our panelists to the stage. My name is Michaela Ross. I am a uh, tech and telecom reporter with Bloomberg BNA. I'm honored to be here with all of you today. We'll get situated up here. And we're also Skyping in several of our panelists. So I will start with our Skype guest, uh, Melinda Epler. Welcome. Uh, Melinda is the founder CEO of Ch uh, Change Catalyst. Excuse me, let me get my notes here. Which works to promote diversity and inclusion in tech, uh, working with the tech industry itself um, to help uh, fund events in, um, in funding itself and in education. We also have joining us from Madison, Wisconsin, Aaron Oliver. Aaron himself is the uh, managing director of the University Research Park out there, which helps to connect the research being done in the university with the region and uh, incubate businesses there. And then here in our own studio, we have Donna Harris. Donna is the founder and CEO of 1776, which is a global business incubator that uh, started right here in DC. And uh, Donna has also worked with Startup America Partnership, which is integrating entrepreneurial communities um, into national startup ecosystems. And last but not least, we have uh, Mr. Philip Johnson, and or excuse me, Jordan. Um, thank you. Uh, he's executive director of the Economic Advancement Research Institute and the vice president of BW Research Partnership, uh, where his work focuses on encouraging greater in innovation and connecting that innovation to new communities. So thank you all for being here. Um, can you, is the sound okay for our Skype uh, panel? Yes. Wonderful. All right. So with the, uh, the research report coming out today, I would love to hear your first impressions, the good, the bad, the ugly. Let's start with one good and one bad. What is going on with America's innovation research um, ecosystem? What, it, what is a positive and what might be something that is a concern as we look to keep our competitive edge? Why don't we start with you, Aaron? So one of the things I was really heartened by in the report was seeing the opportunity to build innovation ecosystems across America really highlighted. I think that there's been a number of initiatives lately, like Steve Case's Rise of the Rest that have sort of showcased non-traditional innovation hubs, and that's clearly going to be important to our strategy going forward. Uh, you know, in terms of concerns, I think the most sobering thing is the stagnation and decline of federally funded and state funded research, particularly at universities, that could really threaten innovation going forward. Melinda, would you Melinda, like to would catch that? that? Yeah, I, so one good, one bad. I think the, the good is really the democratization of innovation and um, coding schools, boot camps, and uh, lower cost education in the tech sector. Um, as well as um, a lower barrier to entry in getting into uh, entrepreneurship. Um, the, the bad, I would say, is, um, well, Secretary Carter pointed to this a bit. We need to ensure that everyone benefits from this innovation economy, and there are lots of people who are being left out currently. Um, there's a digital divide in the country, and um, the tech industry as a whole is undervaluing diversity, which has some serious repercussions in terms of innovation, equity, wealth, and opportunity gaps. Which is definitely something that we'll be touching on later in the panel as well. Um, Philip, would you share with us your, your observations either from the report or and adding to that your own experience as to as state of play? 
Yeah, so I, I'd say that um, the good and the bad are actually two sides of the same coin. So I think it's, it's great that we've maintained a leadership position in uh, technological innovation, and, and certainly there's a lot of positive momentum um, in that innovation ecosystem. Uh, the bad, I think, is that um, it perhaps has bred some complacency. Um, and so uh, during some of the conversations out in, in Silicon Valley and the greater Bay Area, um, I did notice quite a bit of hubris um, that uh, I seem to recall a brand called Route 128 that was the uh, technical hub of, of the world uh, outside, in, outside of my hometown of Boston, um, which uh, has largely disappeared as a brand um, and certainly is, is not uh, the same innovative engine that, that perhaps you have in Silicon Valley for consumer electronics particularly. So I would say, you know, it's, it's terrific that we're doing so well, but I think what the report calls out, uh, I think really correctly, is that we, we cannot sit and expect all good things to come to us, that it's constant work that needs to be done. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a good and bad. So it's just take the right lessons from it. All right, Donna? So, so much of what's been said already, I totally agree with. I think it's very rewarding and exciting to see the recognition that there are other tech hubs other than Silicon Valley. We as a country sort of use the word Silicon Valley to represent innovation the same way we use the word Kleenex to describe tissue. Right? And we're doing a disservice to innovators in every part of the country when we do that because that's an exclusive phrase. That means I have to be there. If I'm not there, I'm less than. My city now is less than, incapable, creates a negative perception. And when you travel to these cities, which I have over the past decade, um, every state in the country through Startup America in 1776 all over the world, um, there's more going on in these cities than we recognize as a country. We're not paying attention to it. We're not rewarding it and celebrating it. Um, and in doing so, we're setting up a perception that it can't be done in these cities. And in fact, it can. Um, so, so I think it's very both exciting um, and challenging in that even if we wanted to believe Silicon Valley was the only place you could be successful as an entrepreneur, we can't fit all the entrepreneurs that we need in our country to remake our economy in Silicon Valley. So it's really a moot point at this point. Now we need to figure out what do we do to make sure that every city truly is a place that not only people who want to start companies can thrive, but that this entrepreneurial mindset and way of thinking and resiliency and, and positive opportunistic thinking is embedded in the culture of cities across our country, which today it is not. Well, thank you. And in light of that, this report is coming out in, in very uh, appropriate timing. We are still at the, at the beginning uh, for best purposes for the new administration and looking at ways that the federal government and state and local governments can support the development of, in, of innovation on an R&D level, on an immigration level, on an intellectual property level, you name it. So all of you are coming from very different backgrounds. I would love to hear uh, your top priorities, what you think, how you think the, the federal government fits in this role, um, what their top priorities should be uh, to continue that, that innovation drive. Aaron, should we start with you again? Sure. Um, you know, one of the things that I think the report did a really great job of highlighting was the importance of some of the federal programs that support research and research spending in general. So, for example, uh, it pointed out that we've now slipped to 12th in federally sponsored research, which is affecting universities across the country. That's something that I think uh, should be on the, 
the agenda for the incoming administration. The report also called out the Small Business Innovation Research Grants, SBIRs, which are really useful forms of seed capital that really focus on research being commercialized by companies. And it's often one of the critical stages of seed equity for early stage companies. And it's it's uh, non-dilutive, so it's incredibly valuable. And, and those two um, areas of federal spending, I think, should be high on everyone's priority list. So then let me follow up with you, Aaron. What is the risk if we, uh, if we don't continue to, to or if we, if we don't reverse this trend and start boosting uh, research funding? Yeah, I think one of, the, you know, one of the things that I think is increasingly clear is that innovators like to cluster together. And you see this at every level of scale. So you see it within uh, incubators and co-working spaces. You see it in university research parks and innovation districts across the country. You see it in industry clusters. You see it in cities. And so the danger is if, if the United States isn't investing to capture our fair share, it, it tends to cluster and that those, it tends to create competitive advantages through that clustering. And those advantages, those competitive advantages compound year after year. So I think we're at a, a real risk of long-term economic and strategic disadvantages if we're not investing to capture innovation here broadly across America. Philip, could you add to that? What do you see as the risks of, of not uh, increasing funding in, the, in research and development? Yeah, so I tend to view most things around innovation through a talent lens. That's kind of the way that my work is. And um, with most of the issues that you talked about, to me one of the big risks is that if your research isn't funded here and we're not attracting and developing the best and the brightest to create the new technologies, they'll go to places where they're going to get funded. Uh, so I think we, we seed academic leadership, um, thought leadership, um, and we lose innovators. You know, one of the, um, one of the real draws to, to America and to these tech hubs um, is access to that kind of funding to perform research and, and to be a global epicenters of early stage research. So I think really we, we run a risk of losing out on the talent race. Yeah, and, if, and if I could just add, I mean, make no mistake, I'm on the board of the Global Entrepreneurship Network. Over 150 nations who have prioritized entrepreneurship and innovation as their top priority. They recognize the need to create these hubs, to drive R&D spending, to create connections between the public and private sector, to support innovators. And, and so this truly is a competitive race. So we have the lead, we have to keep the lead. And one of the ways we can do that is to continue doing what we know works. Right? If there are things that work, we should continue to do them. One of which is the investing in R&D, both with inside government and universities, but also providing incentives for private sector R&D and encouraging the funding that is necessary for people to look at the hard problems and to be the place that the hard problems get solved. Interesting. Uh, Melinda, do you have anything you'd like to add? Or I, I'm also looking for any of our panelists to, to give me a, a tangible example of where you've seen, maybe even recently, uh, an example of R&D really propelling a company forward, or propelling an ecosystem forward um, to, to make some commercial gains in the tech sector. Well, I mean, all you have to do is take a trip to China and how much government money is being fueled into research centers, hubs of technology, without really thinking and putting a constraint on the requirements of commercializing, right? They recognize the need to invest. Now, they're certainly not putting the quantity of dollars in, but there's a focus to it and there's a, a race to it. And so, you know, you look at 
all you have to do is go literally across the southern half of China to any one of the growing communities, and you'll see it. Go look to the United, the UAE, right? We just opened a, a hub there. The UAE has set an objective to be the smart city's capital of the world and to drive innovation across the entire Middle East. That's not just words. They're literally putting hundreds of millions of dollars behind the important initiatives, everything from driverless cars to paperless government to paperless healthcare. I mean, once they make up their mind that that's part of the initiative, they're aligning their entire economy around it. And they're throwing some serious dollars behind this. 1776 is moving there, correct, too, in Dubai? We've opened a hub there in order to mobilize entrepreneurs from across the Middle East and across the world. We ran a challenge with them recently where we took entrepreneurs from all over the world and they set up in the UAE to commercialize their technologies in the UAE and to partner with them to solve some of these intractable problems around smart cities and healthcare and education for the future. You know, these are hard problems to solve and they're interested in putting the capital behind it because they know if we're the place these problems get solved, we become the hub of choice. Well, and government can play an important role in reducing risk, right? So, you know, if, if Qualcomm had the same risk tolerance as you know, the federal government in terms of R&D spending, the number would be less than $45 billion and there wouldn't be nearly the level of innovation that we've seen out of the company because you know, things happen, right? Every, every road that they take in their R&D, every dollar spent in R&D at Qualcomm did not end up being a technology that was implemented and made money, right? So you have to have a tolerance for failure and, and for taking risk in order to create something new. And, um, you know, addressing those market failures, government can play a very important role in filling some of those gaps and resolving some of those risks. And if other governments do it, that's where the innovations are going to happen because we know that it works. The other, you know, the other thing that I would add is that um, it's important to invest in basic research because you never know exactly where the innovation is going to come from. So I'll give you, you know, a good example that was mentioned in the report. Here at University Research Park, we have a company called Stratatech. This is a company that was formed by a professor from the university who was one day working in her laboratory doing basic research on skin. She wasn't trying to be an entrepreneur. She wasn't trying to um, discover anything necessarily with a commercial purpose, but she made a serendipitous discovery in her lab doing NIH-funded basic research that wound up being useful because it allowed her to grow a skin substitute that could be used to treat burn victims or uh, perhaps uh, soldiers who have been uh, suffered from bomb blasts or, or chemical weapons or uh, dirty bombs, that kind of thing. And she, with the help of the federal government through the SBIR program and, and other programs, she spun it out into a company. She's on the verge of entering a phase three clinical trial with this product. She's employing something like 60, 70 people in Madison today. Uh, but this company is also on the verge of eliminating skin grafting in the treatment of burn victims across the country. So uh, uh, it has huge military applications, but also civilian applications. And it never would have come, come out of anywhere if it hadn't been for an investment in basic research and then the follow-on funding to commercialize it. Melinda, we will definitely come back to you. One second. And go ahead, Donna. There's such an important point in there that I want to make sure that we don't miss, which is that when we think about innovation, we tend to think about it as a linear thing. We want you to do some innovative process to produce something as a result of it, a product, a company, a venture, some way to get my return. 
But we also need to recognize that the process of innovating is how we change the culture, right? We've, in the industrial society, we've got a system of training people and educating people in the workforce to follow directions, to be a cog in a giant wheel. And we now need people to be thinkers and problem solvers and innovators and creators. And the only way that happens is if we involve them in the process of innovating. So you know, we were talking briefly about like, how do you measure the role of an innovation hub, an accelerator, an incubator? And, and is it return on investment? Is it ventures produced? And I would posit that it is also culture change education, getting people comfortable with risk tolerance, getting them to try the process. Maybe some will produce these great ventures like the example that we heard about. We certainly believe that will be the case, but we also have to be confident and comfortable that this risk, this process of exposing them to risk taking will be the key to culture change that we need to get more people thinking about innovation, right? So it's an engine that has to get going. Melinda, we're shooting to you. Yeah, I want to also take us back to the beginning of the pipeline of innovation and talk about uh, one of the things that the, the, the report brought up was that we have a shortage of, we'll have a shortage of two million highly skilled workers in the next decade. And that, that poses a real problem for innovation here in the US. Um, and the, the federal government has an opportunity to invest in our own public education systems and our um, early stage education systems to get more people coming in the pipeline, um, not just from the immigration side, but also coming in the pipeline from our backyards. And I'm here in San Francisco where there's, there's currently still a digital divide in the public school system where kids don't have, um, they don't have a, a digital access at home. And there's a real need to, um, to invest in the local public school systems so that people who are growing up right in the backyard of the tech companies can go into, can um, become part of the pipeline going into those tech companies in the future. Well, that's an interesting observation. Uh, I was just at South by Southwest, uh, the tech conference there. And one of the observations that their housing department made was that Austin, the city, has, has, has some initiatives. There are actually private companies in Austin are trying to invest in the school system there because they see it as this is like a seven-year investment. You know, these kids are going are gonna to be coming out of schools. They're going to be in our ecosystem. Let's invest in their STEM skills now. Are you seeing that? You're seeing that you're not seeing that as much in where you're at in the valley. No, not at all. There's a there's there are millions of dollars being invested into immigration reform, which is great, but that there is not much money at all being invested into the local systems. Okay, so let's uh, shift gears a little bit then to our next topic about what is going on with the different tech hubs within the United States. And uh, as we, we were talking earlier before the panel, Tom Friedman has the fa famous line that uh, the world is flat, but the report comes up on a different angle on this, that in fact some geographical areas have experienced more, uh, more innovation than others, and we're wondering uh, why that is, and looking at why that is, and is it desirable even to try to promote innovation in a place that it hasn't seemed to taken roots already. So Philip, tell, share with yeah. us your Sure. Yeah, I was very happy to see that in the, in the report because I do think that we, we live in a spiky earth and actually that technology is, is widening the divides, not, uh, not minimizing them. So um, there's an interesting book uh, written by um, Professor Moretti uh, called The New Geography of Jobs that details some of the reasons why. But a, a lot of it does have to do with talent, right? So when you go to Silicon Valley or you go to Boston or you go to the tech hubs that are in the report, what you find is that um, 
innovation sort of breeds innovative culture, which sort of breeds entrepreneurship, which breeds more innovation. So you have serial entrepreneurs focusing on creative destruction, um, recognizing that, that uh, this is kind of the path forward. Um, this in turn kind of often has some you know, negative consequences like skyrocketing housing prices, right? So you can only afford to live in an area if you're working in a high value added industry, which tends to then require that you have really good schools and pipelines. Um, the other thing though that I think is important for us to remember, and I know we're gonna get to this in a little bit, but I have to kind of throw the plug back in, is that when this happens, right, what you end up creating is what we've kind of started calling a, a, a meritocracy, right? Where instead of having a meritocracy as things work, what you actually end up getting is you look, you look for people who are just like you. Um, and so what you end up getting is a kind of almost a, 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 a monoculture of activity. And it becomes very hard in many of these innovation hubs to look outside of the cocoon of where you typically source that talent. So I think that that is something that is a, is a challenge that needs to be addressed. Um, but certainly, um, we see that the, that the innovation hubs keep, keep growing. Um, on, a, on a macro level across the US, I think you can have these hubs that can grow up and it's not all gonna be in Silicon Valley. Within smaller regions though, you know, I think it's very unlikely that you would find a large technological hub somewhere in very close proximity to New York City or Boston or, or Silicon Valley. It's much more likely than that you, you would want to have a different strategy, right? So I would not recommend trying to create a tech hub in Fall River, Massachusetts or Springfield, Massachusetts or Fresno, California. Um, but that actually a transit-oriented development might make more sense to have more access to people getting into those jobs. So I, I do think there's, you know, certainly there's lots of room for innovation and innovation hubs, but uh, you know, I don't think we're going to see a flattening occur. I, don't, I, don't, I, think, I think it's more likely spikes will increase. That's a really great point. I mean, we, so we work in, this year we're working in 14 different tech hubs around the U.S. and globally, and, and we, and also, participate in roundtable discussions um, throughout more emerging tech hubs. And, and what we're seeing is just that mirror, mirrortocracy that you're um, talking about is actually um, also um, coming about when different tech hubs are starting to emerge and they're looking at Silicon Valley as a template. They're looking at the way we do things as a template for how to invest, how to educate, how to really create the infrastructure around innovation. And it poses a lot of problems um, because those each of these each tech hub needs to be localized for the local community, for the local economy, um, and and each investment, um, the, the development of investment in that ecosystem needs to be different depending on where those um, dollars are in that local ecosystem. So, so uh, through through my, my work at Startup America was really all about if we recognize that startups create jobs, then how do we make sure startups can flourish everywhere because we need jobs everywhere. And so the entire thesis for my work for two years was we can create startup ecosystems, but it has to be from the bottom up. So sitting and debating where a hub should or shouldn't be is really not what, what we should be spending our time doing. Entrepreneurs are gonna cluster where they're going to cluster. And oftentimes it's difficult to pinpoint what drives them to one city versus another, right? Like why Boulder? Why 
Washington DC, it draws different people, right? The person that would want to be in Boulder is different than the person that would want to be in Washington DC. And so what we saw was that the hubs that began to flourish, so if you look five years ago, there weren't hubs in places like, even 10 years ago, places like Nashville and Miami and Dallas, Fort Worth, or even here in DC, didn't have 1776, right? If you wanted to go work with an entrepreneur, how do you find them? You, you wouldn't. So one of the things that we recognized was you had to go find serial successful entrepreneurs who were in those cities and embolden them to make their city the best possible place and connect them to one another so they could help each other and learn from one another. And so if you look at the hubs that have emerged, whether it's Venture Hive in Miami, 1776, Dallas Entrepreneur Center, Nashville Entrepreneur Center, the majority of them have a Startup America champion at their root because they learn from one another that space matters, place matters, but we can create a proxy for density by creating physical spaces. And so that's why you've seen all these, these physical hubs emerging. What we've done at 1776 is really recognize that this density is the issue, that the talent is the issue. And so if we can equalize that, then people can choose whatever city they want to choose in. Right? When I went to Silicon Valley, the very first time I went for, not as an entrepreneur, but in my role at, at Startup America, I was speaking at an event with a major Silicon Valley publication, and the person who was the editor of the publication was interviewing me, and she could not believe that there were serious entrepreneurs outside of Silicon Valley. She was in a state of incredulity. And so I asked the audience, how many of you are originally from Silicon Valley? And like, no hands went up. And when I asked how many would have rather started their business where they were originally from, almost every single hand in the audience went up. Right? And so if you can make all things being equal, which is typically talent and capital, people mm -hmm. will start and stay in the places that they're from. And so that's what we began to focus on, is how do you focus on the talent? Well, if we can create a nationwide mentor network, so if you're here in DC, but you're mentoring startups in Madison, that helps the entrepreneur stay in Madison. So these sorts of initiatives that level the playing field allow the entrepreneurs to choose wherever they want to be. And frankly, if you want to start your business on a farm in West Virginia, you should be able to do that. How do we level the playing field? Because we've got this newfangled thing called the internet that allows us to all talk to one another. So the democratization of information, the free flow of expertise, mentorship, connections, this next era is all about those things. So I really do believe that the cities that are highlighted in your report are just the beginning of what we are going to see as housing costs in these big cities, quality of life, people get to the point where they want better schools for their kids, whatever is driving them. They will have a return to the communities that they're in and they'll stay where they're in. Let's help them flourish where they're planted, where they stay where they are. So then to follow up with that, Aaron, um, it looked like you were about to say something, but I'm going to add a question, add a question onto what you were about to say as well. So Donna, just, she says, talent, capital, and connections, where do you see local, state, federal government uh, coming in to help foster those things in the next four years? So I think that Donna made two points that were really interesting. Well, many points that were interesting, but two that I wanted to particularly pick up on. One is that Density is sort of a secret weapon in this topic. So there was a great study that the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of New York did a few years ago that showed if you double the density in a metro area, you increase its human capital and increase its productivity. And I think that strategy scales across any level. So you can create it within an incubator. You can create it by focusing on creating vibrant, walkable downtowns or vibrant centers in suburbs. You can use density across America. 
The other thing that she pointed out was how important new business formation and entrepreneurship was. And I think that um, to, to Philip's point, we can't expect every place in the country to be a venture-backed hub of life science and software, but we can expect to see entrepreneurship across, across the country, and we should. When I was the Wisconsin Secretary of Commerce, I, I saw the most interesting startups that were doing incredibly well and employing a lot of people. I saw a, a sausage packaging startup go from nobody to 700 people. I saw a window manufacturer. I saw food processors, as well as the types of companies, the biotech companies that I work with today, of course, coming out of the University of Wisconsin. But we can promote entrepreneurship and make it visible and invest in, in things like uh, co-working spaces or accelerators, incubators. Uh, in Wisconsin, we set up uh, angel and venture capital tax credits about 10 years ago to help them raise that hard-to-find early-stage stage funding. Uh, I've seen um, Wisconsin have pretty good success uh, using small grant programs to help leverage SBIR grants and help entrepreneurs either plan or bridge between those those types of resources. So I think there's a lot of policy things that we can do to promote entrepreneurship broadly, to make it visible to the community, to uh, make it dense where we can, and then to also have some targeted programs that help people with things like access to capital. Thank you, Aaron. Thank by you. The way, by the way, I want to mention that I really like your badger. I like your badger. <laughs> I'm originally from Wisconsin, so yeah, yeah. Go, go Badgers. All right, so then following up on what you're talking about with, with labor, let's talk about some labor policy. Um, Lynn had also mentioned the issue we have kind of a perfect storm here where we, it doesn't seem like we're filling our, our labor shortage with up-and-coming education initiatives, but we also aren't uh, filling it with immigration. Both of these issues are going to be colliding uh, in the next few years. So what labor reforms are needed on either of those two fronts, um, uh, education initiatives uh, or immigration, that you see would be really critical at this moment in order to help the U.S. keep its competitive edge? and develop some of these, these tech hubs. The, this question is open to the floor. I'll, I'll start with just a, a thought. So we often hear statistics, and I'm guilty of tweeting them myself, of immigrants create businesses at X percent rate higher than native, people that are natively born here. Um, and what I've begun to wonder is, what's cause versus correlation, right? So if we think about if our education system is teaching people to follow directions as opposed to question things and problem solve and create and innovate and not necessarily have the risk tolerance for getting out and trying something new and maybe I'm gonna fail and if I fail I've got the resilience to do something with that. Yet people who are proving themselves risk tolerant by getting in a boat, leaving everything behind, coming to a new country, then start businesses. I look at those two things and I think, is it actually that the immigrants are more entrepreneurial or is that something that we need to look at in terms of the root causes of why are we actually not as entrepreneurial as we used to be, right? Every business that we have as a big company in America used to be a startup, right? And 
we don't have, we've lost the mojo, right? Startup rates are down over the last 30 years. The millennial generation is the least entrepreneurial generation of the last however many. And there's some really good reasons why. It's not because they're bad people or horrible or whatever. There are real, real tangible reasons why. Student loan debt, risk tolerance, all the things that we've taught them that we want them to be turns out not to be what we want them to be, right? And when we think about corporate America, right, I'm doing a really focused research piece now on innovation inside corporations. And when we define innovation, we tend to define it as product innovation. I want this new product, this new business line, this new revenue line. And everybody talks about, well, I want to create an innovation ecosystem inside my company. Why can't I get my people to innovate? And it's a culture problem. When you go and talk to their employees, they're like, yeah, I come, I get a paycheck. I just want to do my job. I want to go home. I don't feel empowered. Right? And so we have this disconnect where we, when we most need our country to get its mojo going, we're hitting this news button around the country. Right? And so like, this, to me, is the, is the issue. And it isn't, yes, we need new immigrants because we always need new ideas, new talent, new flow of ideas, especially people that are proving themselves to have that profile as creators. But we got to figure out the mojo problem, because that's really not just around the startup rate. It's around the resiliency and how do we revitalize communities and sort of solve some of the things that we saw play out um, post-election and the frustration that we're seeing around the country. So I feel like we're now, now we're starting to get revved up. So you took on corporations and immigration. So I'm going to take on race, ethnicity, and gender. No big deal. Um, so so I. I um, I'm a member of an organization called the Bicoastal Workforce Alliance, which is a collaboration of philanthropists and workforce development boards in Silicon Valley uh, and, and Boston um, with, uh, with some partners in New York. And um, we decided to take on um, some issues around uh, race, ethnicity, and gender, particularly in IT, so, so sort of a sliver of, of, of tech, um, because we find that despite a lot of action and discussion and money and other things, we're really not moving the needle at all in diversity in IT. It's, it's, an, it's a national embarrassment, actually, um, that there's not more attention being paid to it. Um, and a significant reason why um, we have challenges is because we have conversations about race, ethnicity, and gender diversity in industries. And everyone who talks about it on the panel looks like me. And that's not good, because I don't know what I'm talking about. Right? Uh, in that regard. That's very honest of you to say. I need, right? In order for me to know what we should be doing, there should be women represented who have lived the life of being told yes or no, up or down, looked at certain ways, talked down to certain ways to really understand what's happening there, encouraged or not encouraged. We need, um, we need African Americans, Latinos, Native Americans particularly, those groups who are consistently underrepresented in employment and IT to figure out what some of the drivers are. And when you do that, you start hearing messages like, oh, we run this great diversity program where we bring young people of color into uh, biotech labs in Cambridge. And then you talk to the kids afterwards, and they tell you, I just saw jobs that a lot of white guys do. And it reinforces the message that those jobs aren't for them. And you realize that what you've actually done at the end of that session is you've made it worse, right? And that's what happens when, honestly, I'm, I hate to put it this way, but it's what happens when a bunch of white guys get in a room and decide what's best for everybody else, okay? So this is my little admonition, and then I'll dial it back. But I just think that if we're going to get serious about talent shortages, and we have places like Boston, which has very low unemployment rate overall, 
and the highest unemployment rates that we find are in neighborhoods of color, maybe there's a source of talent that we could start looking at. And as one of my good friends from, from Silicon Valley reminds me constantly, if the kids in those neighborhoods were great athletes, there would be a system in place that would find them. But I promise you there are math geniuses and creative geniuses in those neighborhoods that are not being found and won't be found because you're not looking for them the right way. So I think the great part about what, to bring it back to this report, is that it does talk about diversity, it does talk about these issues, and it starts us moving down the, uh, down the road in that. And I think, I hope that as people read the report and review it and reflect on it, that's where we'll see some real action is, is, is in those continuing conversations. Thank you, Philip. And I want to make sure that, yeah, we're about to get, go to questions, so please be thinking about your question. Just think for one second. Before we do that, I really want to make sure that Melinda gets to weigh in on this. Tell us what you're thinking on, on this topic. Can I first just say I'm so glad that for uh, it, it doesn't happen very often that I'm not that I'm not the first one to bring up diversity and inclusion, and that it is a white man that brings that up. So thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> I really, I do appreciate that, and I I, I think that um, conversations like these around innovation and the future of innovation really do need to include. Uh, lots of voices and perspectives, and um, and that's really really important to think about um, moving forward. Uh, in terms of diversity and inclusion in the tech industry, I talked for hours about that. Obviously, uh, one of the the things that the the Department of Labor, to get back to your original question, the the labor side of it is um, the Department of Labor and the EEOC have have started. Um, going to tech companies, suing tech companies for releasing their diversity numbers and really moving the needle on those diversity numbers. And that in itself can make a big difference. If, um, if they can be, really be empowered to do more of, of those actions um, and to insert some pressure on the tech industry to really move those numbers that have changed ever so slightly um, in, in some companies. Um, that could make a big difference in the tech industry. And at the same time, really looking at, um, there's, a, there's an opportunity at the federal government level and at the local government levels to, to invest in entrepreneurs. We're losing so many great ideas um, because they aren't being invested in. Uh, you know, the, the, the number of venture, the amount of venture capital that gets invested in African Americans and Latinas, uh, Latinos is um, less than 2% of all venture capital. Um, and it's only 3% for women. All, all venture capital goes to just 3% women and uh, less than 2% for African Americans and Latinos. There's a huge gap there in funding and, and there are some amazing ideas that just aren't being funded. So there's, there's a real opportunity to, to look at um, investment models and some blended capital models that, that really um, invest more in those underrepresented idea, uh, communities. Those are some pretty, those are some pretty staggering numbers. Thank you, Melinda. All right, oh, I saw some hands go up. Yes. Thank you. Hey, thanks. Uh, I'm Paula Stern. I'm, uh, I guess, on uh, been with the Atlanta Council for many years, uh, and uh, was involved, uh, I guess, in the very beginning with this study. Uh, but I want to thank you again for bringing up the question that is so incredibly important in terms of the labor force. I think the report does a good job of focusing on the, that labor force and human capital. But coding camps is not a substitute for universal 
computer science in K-12. Um, the federal government has a role um, that must be played uh, with the state and local levels. Uh, women, I did see the word woman in here, um, but uh, I think that the word diversity is, uh, uh, was in the study more with regard to immigrants and the whole question of very special uh, self-selected people. But there is no reference when it comes to the fact that we have uh, over a half a million computer science jobs unfilled um, and that uh, women are leaving the corporate settings in computer science, in information technology, at twice the rate of men. Um, and that there is a toxic culture um, that needs to be uh, addressed. And of course, we've gone backwards. We had 40% of, uh, of computer science grads in the 80s were women. It's down to 18% now. So there is definitely a need for this study to emphasize the photos are great, they have women. You've heard me on this, Nate. And Qualcomm's been wonderful in supporting an organization, National Center for Women and in Information Technology. But we cannot spend, we have to spend more time addressing that labor pool, those girls and boys of all colors. Um, and I, I, I think we're making some progress, but I think we're dancing around it. So I I just, I'm sorry, it's a statement. No, well, actually, there's a good, there's a good example, actually. Qualcomm uh, in the San Diego office has yeah. a Think a Bit lab, and I, it was where I got my first introduction on this very issue with women in tech, because there was a classroom of maybe 30 kids that came through, and it, it's a, a fascinating, incredible program that you should check out. And they, they had these 30 kids, and they asked questions. OK, everyone stand up and then sit down when you disagree with the statement, right? So they're making a display. And they'd ask these questions, you know, keep standing if you like money. So all 30 kids stand up. And they were from a, a lower income uh, uh, neighborhood. And then a couple other questions were asked, and a few people were sitting down here and there. And then they said, um, who likes math? And every girl in the class sat down. And this is like fifth grade, sixth grade, something like that? It starts in the second grade. There you go. So, yep. so but by the end of that program, they're performing, excited, interested. So it's intentionally designed. It's a good model. It should be, you know, unfortunately, Qualcomm can't, Qualcomm can't afford to run it for every student in every city in America. But it's a model that, that should be expanded, and it's, a, it's the kind of thing that works. Um, and that's really something, a role that government can play, is if the private sector builds something that effective, is there a way that we can implement it without, you know, without losing what's, what's great about it and customize it and spread it? So. Uh, just as a suggestion to check out. Can I also just add one thing around diversity and inclusion? Thank you for your comments. I think um, those are all very, very, very much needed. Um, and I want to expand the diversity conversation even further to go to gender, race, ethnicity, but also people with disabilities who are um, the number of people with disabilities who have degrees in computer science that are under, un, unemployed and underemployed are unbelievable. Um, so people with disabilities as well as LGBTQ and um, veterans as well. Um, and then also uh, we have a real age discrimination problem in, in the tech sector as well. 
So looking at people who are over 35, 40 years old in, in tech and really um, changing the biases that the tech industry has around all of those populations. Thank you, Melinda. We're going to go to our next question. Go ahead. Uh, thank you very much. I'm a, a member for UNESCO Task Force since 2000, and it happened that for family reasons I'm migrating to the United States. Uh, I visit quite a lot of time. Uh, to, uh, you mentioned community resilience. Everything I heard is exceptionally good, what said, but rebuilding communities, I will be more specific, across America is the next step where only America can be competitive in the world. I will be specific. When I launched with UNESCO in 2000, the project called Intangible Cultural Heritage, local music, dance, wisdom, and so on, the only place where I could find the learning I needed was Smithsonian Institution. And Smithsonian came to Paris, and we developed the project without Smithsonian Institution. So I want to underline unique resources and competencies relevant for each community, each person around the world. Last uh, October, with the new Library of Congress, I'm a member for World Digital Library Project, Library of Congress plus UNESCO. Uh, United States offered to Afghanistan 600 years of history of Afghanistan in digital format. After six months almost, I can't tell you how much is already beneficial. So my point is, is there are a lot of resources. And my friends across America, when I visit, uh, was in the Smithsonian or World Digital Library, their children, their families are interested. So my point, how to have what I call shared local community facilities, a convergence of museum and libraries uh, to enhance after school, out of school education, I conducted tests more in Scandinavia and Japan, so I don't know how much it's relevant, but human beings are the same. And building families, local communities, no ideology here, and no politically correct. Uh, if we go to local level to rebuild tests through experiments rather than big policies, I think the key is to revitalize local communities by providing this type of competencies, resources, and then entrepreneurship will follow. I have so many examples across the world. But inform, immerse, and whether diversity or women or family, all those issues, people are human beings, and they react to what they can really experiment. Conclusion, immerse America, Americans in what America is, mm -hmm. and you will be successful. I can take every question to challenge it, but it will work. Every politic is local, and every person is individual. Thank you. All right. Uh, we'll follow up another, another question. Just a point off of that, I, I, have you heard of uh, like cities like San Jose that are implementing coding centers into their libraries to make them more it's, a, it, it's actually increasingly common. I mean, the point about resiliency is such an important one. If you think about the shift from the agricultural to the industrial economy. In the agricultural world, it was all about local. Everything was local. You lived with your local family in your local city. You consumed what you produced. Right? It, you knew your neighbor. If someone's barn burned down, you were there to help build it. And the industrial era has been all about bigger, better, faster, cheaper. Decision-making moves further and further away from the local communities. People feel less and less a sense of agency. And we found this with Startup America. When we'd go into communities and we'd find that there was actually a lot more entrepreneurship activity than was getting recognized, that even locally they recognized. And when you talk to the entrepreneurs about 
what are they doing to build their own startup community, they sort of threw their hands up and said, well, you know, the Economic Development Agency does blah, 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 or the state government is doing yada, yada. Every time they would point to an institution as being the owner of that thing versus recognizing that, no, actually, the majority of the things that they could do to build the community rested in their own hands, right? They could go to the wealthy families and unlock capital. They could create a mentorship network. They could create a hub. They could go to corporations and get them mentoring. They didn't need any government policies or intervention to do that. And once the light bulb went on, that sense of agency around the ability to revitalize their own startup community, it, they were off to the races. And then what, what you think about the digital era takes that sense of local community and puts it on steroids because they're now connecting community to community. So if something is working in one community, we can immediately, like wildfire, spread it to other communities around the world or around the country. And so that sense of, of reigniting that spirit of we can do it, we have a lot more going on, there's more of this that's in our control than we realize, let's start digging in, but let's connect to others like us in other parts of the world so that if something works, let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's do what works before we get to the part where we have to figure out the rocket science. And I think also in, in that community vein, um, uh, I think too often we have kind of different um, options and access um, for for programs that exist. So um, you know, you, you know, certain populations get the get the lunch takeout menu that's you know eight choices all pre-programmed, and others get the you know the cheesecake factory menu with 32 pages of cheesecakes to order from, right? And so. Um, what we kind of looked at was what if what if you had a system where if this person went into a workforce development board, they got the same sort of professional development tests that you get if you go to your supervisor at Qualcomm or at um, or at Sanofi. Um, what if you had an open access place where everyone from the community was welcome and supported, um, where you know it could be a recent MIT graduate next to somebody who just finished their high set exam, um, but all learning towards a, a, a common goal or connecting with people. We have to remember that networks are so important. Um, in this world, and if you if you separate people based on you know here's where the elites hang out and here's where the non-elites hang out, then there's no possibility for that kind of cross-pollination. And every single study done about you know the Silicon Valley, right? And I, I love that comment, right? It's always where's the Silicon Valley of water going to be? Where's the Silicon Valley of this going to be? Well, one of the great things about Silicon Valley is that there is so much of this cross-pollination of ideas, right? And it is about building communities and bringing people together. So I think we really need to rethink some of these models, right? Don't come at a problem and say, here's a bag of money, here's the population I want you to work with, here's how long you get, and oh by the way, make sure that at the end there's some relevance to the local economy. No, instead say, what do employers around here really need? What are the problems they face? And then say, now, what does it look like to try to get people from various parts of our community engaged in those jobs, and what are the steps along the way? That's how products are built, right? That's how supply chains are built. That's how we should be doing education and training. So I think that's a great comment, right? Think about your community and its assets and how you bring people together um, and build something that's inclusive and open, right? I, I think it would be a much better output. Thank you, Philip. Let's take another question. I know this gentleman had one in the front. Do we have the microphone? Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. And then we'll go to the back next. Go ahead. Uh, <clears throat> I'm Harlan Ullman with the Atlantic Council. Assuming, and this is a big assumption, that we actually put in place a national infrastructure bank to repair our infrastructure, where would you specify money being spent to increase innovation across the board? Specific examples, please. Well, one of the biggest things that needs to be done is make sure that everybody has access to the internet. I think universal access in every part, high-speed internet is a key issue. I mean, 
we know that networks, connectivity, the ability to be part of the digital era is predicated on being able to actually be on the information highway. And in, in many parts of our country, people don't have access and don't have high speed access to it. So that it's the pipes, it's the infrastructure for that, and it's the last mile, making sure that down to the household or the library or the school or wherever, that every single American has the ability to connect to the key piece of infrastructure. I mean, to me, that's, that is job number one. So I would say water because I think it's undervalued and it's critical and there's a massive need for new infrastructure around water. And uh, there's actually way more money than we could ever possibly come up with to pay for the repairs needed. So we need innovation to drive the cost down. Um, and we don't think about water until Flint happens, um, but it's a looming crisis. So I would say water infrastructure is critical. Melinda. Yeah, I would say digital access and, and uh, education as well. I guess and I would. Aaron, yes. Yeah, I mean, um, so so two thoughts. I mean, roads, roads and bridges aren't very sexy to talk about, but we have to remember that the manufacturing sector is still a huge, hugely important part of our economy. Uh, and although employment in manufacturing is declining, output is is still growing. And we need to be able to get those those products to market, and we need the innovation that comes from within the manufacturing sector itself. So we shouldn't overlook um, uh, we shouldn't overlook the basic stuff like roads and bridges. The other thing I would just point out is when you look at where uh, pension funds are, when you look at where universities are, when you look at where engineers are being trained, when you look at um, where there are product you know innovation assets across America, they're spread all over the place. But when you look at where venture capital is managed, it's managed really in in a very few number of places on the coast. And the venture cap, there tends to be something of a market failure because venture capitalists won't invest in places they can't get to easily. So things we can do to increase connectivity, whether it's high-speed rail or airport infrastructure that facilitates direct flights, is important to, to places like Wisconsin. I'm interested just to follow up here, uh, on excuse me, my microphone. Uh, the funding for crowdfunding has set, there's some evidence that it's able, been able to in, in the short period of time that it's been lawful uh, uh, to, to make inroads into investment in middle America. Are you seeing that in your work? A little bit. I was just meeting with a, a company the other day that um, is, is looking for creative sources of capital and they've got a crowdfunding uh, campaign going on right now. So it's going to be really interesting to see how much of that is hype and how much of that is real? But you know, I, you know, I mean, we, we need to be innovative in our approaches to innovation. How, how meta is that? <laughs> All right. Yeah. One more question. There was a gentleman in the back that had uh, raised his hand. Yes, hi. Uh, my name is Will Reinhardt. I study innovation policy um, at the American Action Forum. Um, I actually, well, there's two things. One thing, Mr. Jordan. You mentioned how Springfield, Massachusetts wouldn't be an innovation <laughs> hub. And you probably know the irony of this, which is that Springfield, Massachusetts was the, like one of the first um, cradles of industrial development in the United States. So it is, in fact, my city where I'm from was renamed after Springfield, Massachusetts. Yeah. So there's that one thing. I, I was just wondering, actually, my, my real question was, was about innovation and what do we know about things that don't work? You'd mentioned this mentoring program or this uh, mentoring program that you, you feel doesn't work. Do you think that there's certain things that we know now that say a decade ago has not really panned out and things that we really should be focusing on instead? Um, this really is to anyone on the, uh, on the panel. I'm, I'm just looking for these kinds of failures because I think we learn a lot more by 
failing and figuring out what we've done wrong in the past than we necessarily know about why these spaces are especially great. Let me give you a real quick one. So we did a, a post-mortem on uh, 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 some assessments that we gave to a group of students in Oakland, actually, who had gone through a, a short-term training program and had been placed in jobs at $18 an hour in tech. So seen as kind of bright and shining stars, right? Like they never were supposed to make it. Um, and they did. Um, and so we gave a series of assessments, actually some of them that we learned through, that Qualcomm gives to their kind of bright rising stars. And uh, feedback that I got from one woman who was maybe in her early 30s, who had completed the program and successfully working, uh, she took the, um, the, strong, uh, the uh, strengths finder and she said, um, this is the first time in my, in my professional academic life that I've ever been told that I have strengths in anything, right? And so I think that what we forget sometimes, right, is that there are lots of people out there who have absolutely no support structure to build them up. And the one thing that we found of every entrepreneur that we talked to in Silicon Valley that had created successful technology was that they would say things like, I was just about to give up and I was done. But then I remembered I could call my, my childhood neighbor's dad, oh, who he invented the Y2K patch. And I was able to call him and ask him some questions and he gave me the support I need. And so that's the kind of, if that's the mindset that we come from, right, we forget that um, uh, self-efficacy, uh, support, all of those kinds of elements are so critical and, and, and largely ignored by the public systems. So I think one big thing that we've done is we've, we've focused so intently on technical skills that we've forgotten about everything else that it takes to become a successful careerist in the 21st century. So that, that would be an area, you know, kind of a specific example that I would call on. And we also forget that most people in America don't have the inventor of a wildly successful software package as their next door neighbor, <laughs> right? Like that's not the normal yeah. American experience. <laughs> For most people, they are disconnected from the who you know network that makes much of the innovation economy work. And that's got to be solved. Can't be about who you know and being lucky to be in the right place if we're really going to get the value of these ideas. Um, I, would, I would posit, I'm, I'm working under a thesis right now that I actually think one of the things that's not working, and we'll see the data from that, is I think the putting venture capital at the heart of everything related to the innovation ecosystems, I think is doing our country a disservice. Right? If you think about most of these startup hubs, mine included, the entire thesis is you're going to scale. Scale requires venture capital. Venture capital requires an exit. And it sets up a tra trajectory of activity. When in reality, venture capital is an asset class. Right? It's a way to add fuel to your bank account to grow your company, and we've got to put that perspective back into innovation and look at what is the entire slate of ways you could fund a startup and do we actually have all of the items on this agenda in a balanced order. We don't have bank fund funding. Most people don't have personal assets to be able to even start their business. Student loan debt is an issue. So how do we create a much more balanced view of funding so that we can get not just the venture capital backable home runs, but we can get the singles, doubles, and triples too because there's a whole lot of jobs and a whole lot of necessary innovation that we're not getting because people either are opting out of the venture capital path or they're wanting to create businesses that are just not venture capital backable businesses. Which I don't think is always celebrated when you just create a business to be a sustainable it's business. It's not sexy. No and one's going to write about you in Vast Company magazine. That's true. In the tech industry, that's not always classy. All right, uh, Melinda and Aaron, anything else to add? Yeah, I, 
I would say, um, you know, when you look at the data, almost all the job creation comes from the startup and the scaling of new businesses. And, you know, so the economic strategies that work are the ones that are based in local communities, the things we've been talking about today, being asset-based, being inclusive, focusing on the the entire population that you're that you have available to you, uh, building resiliency. These are the things that promoting entrepreneurship, these are the things that, that really help grow an economy. And what doesn't work is trying to recruit your way to economic growth or chase smokestacks. And, you know, collectively, the United States wastes a lot of money citing facilities, moving them with tax incentives and other sorts of government resources from one place to another or citing them just across the border for a political win. And no state or municipality wants to be the one that unilaterally disarms, but uh, some sort of national compact to end that that effort would be uh, appreciated. Melinda, final word here. Yeah. I absolutely agree. Uh, the The venture capital system does not work for a lot of a lot of um, entrepreneurs and startups, and also a lot of local economies. And it's not necessarily good for our local economies to have something that grows so fast and then becomes acquired by uh, a, a large multinational corporation. Um, one thing that we haven't really touched on too much is is some of the new things that are starting to happen, new trends that are starting to happen around um, Google just brought Morehouse in internally to start to educate um, a, a class of um, coders directly within the, the um, their tech company to um, to try to diversify. There's some new kind of ways of, of, of growing the um, the pipeline that, that, that different tech companies are trying, and I think that um, federal governments, um, the federal uh, agencies have the opportunity to really highlight some of those new stories and new best practices coming out, and and um, also around investment capital, um, some of those new ways of looking at in investment and entrepreneurship, to so that we can start to replicate them in other regions of the country. Thank you. I want to thank all of our panelists and thank you so much to the Atlantic Council for having us, the authors of the study. Thank you all for being here. Much appreciated. Great, great discussion.